1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Now I'm sure that uh, there's a few fans out there of the comic strip Dilbert, um, and anyone who's ever worked in an office, if you haven't familiarised yourself with this comic strip, you should. Uh, there's plenty there to relate to. It's a very clever thing. Uh, the guy who created Dilbert and continues to write the comic strip is a man named Scott Adams. Now, Scott Adams, uh, on one occasion, asked his readers, his fans, to send him their descriptions of their own jobs. Uh, so he said, write out your own job description, you've got one sentence, uh, tell me what you do. And he shared some of the replies that he received. So someone wrote that their job was to take pictures of the unlucky and the stupid. Their job? Are an x-ray technician. <laughs> Another person wrote that their job was to spend most of the day looking out the window. Any guesses? Pilot. Airline pilot. Uh, one person said that they got to go to strange people's houses and take their money. That's the pizza delivery guy. <laughs> The last one was that someone wrote that they got to help people to hate each other. This is the dark one. <laughs> That's either, yeah, a little too cynical perhaps, maybe just very honest, I don't know. At the beginning of chapter 5 here in the book of 1 Peter, Peter gives us a kind of job description for elders in the church, for leaders in the church. Uh, but you'll notice that it's less a list of tasks and responsibilities as it is about attitudes. Uh, so read it with me there, verse 1 of chapter 5. Peter writes, The elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. 
Now just a little bit of Bible trivia to get us started. Uh, that Greek word there that's translated as elder uh, is a word in Greek, presbyteros, uh, from which we get the word presbyter, which is where this denomination, the Presbyterian Church, derives its name. Um, now, that's not a coincidence. The Presbyterian Church was sort of intentionally set up uh, to follow this model of church governance where you have elders leading in churches, uh, in particular where ministers are a part of a team of elders. Um, but we'll leave that aside. Uh, Peter here wants to take the elders aside for a moment. He wants to remind them of what they had signed up for, the kind of leaders that they ought to be. But it's clearly something that he doesn't just want the elders to hear. He's writing this letter to a group of churches. He wants the whole Christian community to hear what he has to say about elders and leadership. Peter knows how important it's going to be that both the elders and the congregations that they're leading are on the same page that they have the same expectations for what their leaders are to be, what they're to do. Um, And I think also he wants to show them the kind of people that they should be encouraging into leadership and appointing as leaders within their churches. Now, this is not just for people who are technically elders either, as we just heard in our kids' talk. Uh, There's all kinds of leadership that gets exercised within the life of a Christian community. And I think what Peter has to say here is relevant Uh, to any kind of leadership that exists within a church. Now, Peter begins here by reminding his readers of his own credentials. Um, See there in verse 1, he reminds them that he was one of the twelve, that he knew Jesus personally, that he was there when Jesus suffered and died and rose again, uh, that he is a witness to all that. It's a not-so-subtle reminder from Peter that he's worth listening to on this subject. Uh, When it comes to talking about eldership, he's got the right credentials. Now, most of us like to know that the people giving us important advice come with the right credentials. That's why we like to know that our doctor has a medical degree, that our electrician is licensed. Some people even care that their ministers are ordained. Now, of course, none of that is a guarantee that they're going to do good work but it is an indication that they're properly trained and qualified. It adds to their credibility. Which is why when a celebrity chef like Pete Evans starts talking about the science behind vaccination or tries to sell you a $15,000 biocharger that has some COVID-19 formulas, whatever that means, the question of credibility should arise. It should give you some reason to hesitate before making a purchase. And if you did buy one of those, I'm sorry for bringing it up and I'm sorry for other reasons. Um, On the topic of elders, Peter says he's got more than enough street cred when it comes uh, to speaking on this issue and to providing this advice. And yet, at the same time, we see that he doesn't want to set himself up as somehow superior to those that he's writing to. He wants to describe himself as a fellow elder, as one who, like all of us, is going to share in the glory to come. And so he gets on to the description itself. Um, He says, elders should... uh, He talks about it around three three areas. Um, He says, elders should firstly view themselves as a shepherd of God's flock that's under their care. Um, That Obviously, Jesus is the chief shepherd over his church and that they function in a role of shepherding God's people. But it's, it's God's people and it's God's church. 
But then he gives us these three attitudes that are to shape their leadership. And we see those here in verses 2 and 3. He says that leaders in the church are to lead willingly, not reluctantly. But secondly, they're to be people who are eager to serve, not for what they can get out of it themselves. Uh, And thirdly, that they should be an example, not a tyrant in the exercise of their authority. See, Pastor Peter says, you shouldn't lead because you feel like you have to. You should do it because you are willing to take on that responsibility. God wants leaders in his church who do it willingly, not grudgingly, not reluctantly. And really, he wants to be led by someone who resents the responsibility, who resents the demands on their time, who's constantly complaining about difficult and draining people that they have to deal with, how they constantly feel weighed down, burdened of teaching and leading others. God doesn't want people in this church just because you kind of feel like there's nobody else to do it. And even if that is true, anyone who's in a position of leadership ought to remember and appreciate what a privilege it is to serve God, to shepherd his flock. And so I say to those elders here, if you're not doing it willingly, perhaps you shouldn't be doing it. Because the people in this church don't need to hear you whinging about what a chore it is to lead them. I've been in pastoral ministry for 15 years now, certainly not as long as some, uh, but long enough to get weary of hearing my colleagues complain about how difficult their job is. And I'll freely confess I've made plenty of those complaints myself. Sure, ministry is hard work. It comes with unique pressures and struggles. But it's not the only difficult job in the world. It's not easy raising children, or dealing with abusive customers in a call centre, or running a small business, or being a lawyer, or caring for the sick in a hospital. In the church, we can do without martyrs in leadership positions. Lead willingly, not because you feel like you have to. Those in leadership, it is says, need to be willing to take on that responsibility. But he says that's not the only criteria for leadership. He says they ought to be willing to lead for the right reasons. And Peter describes it here as not pursuing dishonest gain, but being eager to serve. See, there are those who will be willing to lead, but for the wrong reasons. And he mentions here pursuing dishonest gain. He's almost certainly talking about money, which is how the old NIV translated that verse. But I think it can be a broader sense as well. Now, I imagine most ministers would break into a bit of a right grin if it was suggested that they were in it for the money. But some of them can be. There's sadly no shortage of church scandals over the years where a minister or a treasurer, no slide on you, Pete, were, were caught skimming money off the church accounts, lining their own pockets with it. Did you know that almost every time the false teachers get mentioned, they're described as people who love money. Almost every time. Peter wants to warn us about people like that. That they should not be put into positions of leadership within a church. And while we're on that topic, can I just say that 
just because someone has been successful in business doesn't mean they should be elevated to a position of leadership in a church. It's certainly not a reason to exclude someone either, but we should never see personal wealth as a, a measure of someone's suitability to lead God's people. Peter says if you're going to lead, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Because, he says, you are eager to serve. Eager to serve God and eager to serve his people. That's what should motivate you in leading others. Some people are keen to lead, not because they want to serve others, but because they have trouble listening to others. They have control issues. And so people will seek out leadership positions in a church, not because they really want to serve, but because they want to be in charge. Because they need to be heard. They're not the kind of leaders Peter or Jesus want in his church. Yes, there should be a willingness to lead, but there should be a deeper desire to actually serve, to be serious about being a shepherd of God's flock. And the third thing Peter says about it is that elders are, in verse 3 there, he talks about not lording it over those entrusted to them, but being an example to the flock. He says, don't be a tyrant in the exercise of your authority. Instead, you should be seeking to be an example to others. We see all kinds of different leadership styles in our world. Um, There are those who lead by pushing others around and intimidating. Some people seem to enjoy lording it over others. But that should never be the way things are done within the life of God's people. Elders in God's church are never to abuse their authority. They're not supposed to anyway. What they should be doing is leading by example. I'm sure it's no accident that in the next verse, in verse 4, Peter refers to our chief shepherd. He wants us to call to mind the example of Jesus. The one who on the night before he gave his life for God's people was on his hands and knees washing his disciples' feet, telling them that this is the example they were to follow. That's what leadership looks like among his people. It's a life of service. So to our elders and ministers, I have to include myself in that, please don't just hang around in the job because we happen to have a system that makes it really difficult to get rid of you. And please don't be an elder because you like the image, because of the status that it brings. And there is a kind of status that comes with it. If you've got a habit of sort of telling people for no particularly good reason that you, you're an elder in the church, so you're not a name dropper, but you're a title dropper, that's probably a bit of a red flag. We don't really need leaders who like the way elder looks on their Christian resume. What we need are willing servants, people who care for God's flock and who live lives that are an example to others. So if you are in it for the wrong reasons, it's time to repent of that. Start doing it for the right reasons or failing that. Do God's people a favour and step away. And when the time comes, as it sometimes does, to look to appoint new elders in a church or to appoint people into any sort of position of leadership within the life of a church, these are the kind of people we should be looking for. Don't just appoint the person who's been around the longest as though they're somehow due for a promotion. 
Don't get the person who's particularly eager for the title, for the position. Go to them who serves. Get that person, in fact, who's already doing the job, who's already serving others, who's already functioning as an elder, who's already uh, an example in their lives, whose lives are a fine example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, as I said, Peter's writing to the elders specifically here, but he wants the rest of the church to listen in. In part because I think he wants the church to give the elders permission to lead them as well. See, if you've got elders who will lead like this, lead by example, who are there to serve, who love you, let me encourage you to let them lead you. Invite them to walk alongside you in life. Allow them to lead you. Now, as I said, it's not the case that you have to be an elder to lead, to be an example to serve others. That's going to be done by many different people within the life of any church. In fact, I think just about every single follower of Jesus will have opportunity to lead others in some context, in some capacity. And so we all need to pay attention to what Peter says here about our attitudes when it comes to leadership. To do it willingly, to do it in service of others, to be a shepherd of God's flock that's under your care. Now, having just told the elders what sort of leaders they should be, he turns to the young next and he reminds them of their responsibility to be submissive to those who are older than them. So he says there in verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, why does he single out the younger people here? Well, I guess it's no secret that Younger people tend to want to take control, uh, to bring about change, uh, toss out the old and bring in something new. And so Peter tells them to, to cool their heels, to respect their elders, to submit to their authority, and to humble themselves. But in fact, he goes on to say that that's not just something for the young. Uh, he says that's something for all of you. It says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. We need humility if we're going to maintain peace within the life of our churches. It takes humility to serve without needing to be praised for it. It takes humility to forgive someone who has hurt you. It takes a humble spirit to acknowledge fault. That is, to repent of something when a brother or sister in Christ corrects you. We need humility if we're going to be the kind of people that God has called us to be. And we need to deal with each other in humility if we're going to be the kind of community that resembles what God wants us to be. It doesn't come that naturally for us. Humility is hard. But I think humility becomes a lot easier when we reflect on our God, when we reflect on what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. See, when we can recognise our dependence on God, our need for God, that we, like anyone else, are dependent upon his grace and his mercy for our salvation. 
But that's the greatest antidote to pride that there is. That feeling of considering yourself better than others. And that's why Peter says God loves the humble. He opposes the proud, but he is for the humble. So what does it look like to, to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another? Well, it might mean getting to church early to help set up for morning tea so some people don't have to do that job every week. It might mean putting your hand up to help next door on the kids' program on Sunday mornings. It might mean giving your time and attention to that person who is a little high-maintenance, person who may not be able or willing to reciprocate your generosity in that relationship. That takes humility to recognise that that person is worth your time, worth that emotional investment. We can live like this when we are confident of our standing before God, when we're secure in his love for us, in his care for us. In fact, Peter says that's something we really need to appreciate. So in verse 7, he says, it's a great verse, he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I hope you find it a tremendous comfort to know that the God of this universe actually cares for you. Cares about you. Cares about what is happening in your life. Cares about what you care about. Cares about what you're worried about. And because he not only cares for you, but is in control of everything, God invites us to cast our concerns, our anxieties upon him. It's a wonderfully comforting thing. Have you ever wondered what it might be like to live believing that God was not like that? That God was distant, that God was removed, that he was apathetic about us. Perhaps at some point you did think that way. Perhaps you still do. Assume for a moment that the God of this universe was just disinterested. That he couldn't care less about your life or about what happens to you. I think that's a pretty terrifying reality, isn't it? You would have every reason to be anxious, to be overcome with fears. Now let's give thanks that that's not what our God is like. Our God loves us enough to send his own son to die on a cross. Our God cares deeply for each one of us. Sometimes we need to just stop and reflect on that, to appreciate the simple wonder that God cares for me. To remember what a blessing it is to know that God is trustworthy. And that he even invites us to cast our anxieties upon him. Something I think too often we take for granted. Now the thing that kind of ties 1 Peter together that we've been looking at over these last six weeks. Is this idea of living as foreigners and strangers in the world seeing how God has called us to live a new life as his people, that he's given us a new birth, he's given us an internal inheritance that can never spoil or fade. 
And because we live in a world that is often hostile to God and to his people, Peter's been encouraging his readers to keep going, to persevere even in the face of opposition, even in the face of suffering. And as he finishes his letter, Peter returns to that theme and he urges them once more to stand firm for Jesus in this life. So in verse 9, he says this, Resist him, he's just been speaking of the devil, he says, Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing, undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And then in verse 13, he says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Peter wants them to be able to hold on to Jesus, to resist the devil's schemes, his lies, his temptations, to stand firm, to stand fast in the grace of God, even in the midst of their suffering. So he reminds them of what they have to look forward to when Jesus returns. He speaks here a few times about crown of glory, the glory to be revealed. But he also wants to assure them that God is with them now, that their God cares for them, that he will help them in their struggles in this life. And so we have those verses, to humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God wants to assure us that he will not abandon us to the whims and to the trials of this life. Know that God cares for you. Know that he will help you through it all. He will comfort you. He will strengthen you. He will help you to stand firm for Jesus in this life. So, cast all your anxieties onto that God, the one who cares for you. Stand firm in his grace to you. Know who you are in Christ. And keep living as his alien in this sometimes hostile world.